The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. We are um, going to be reading from Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36, and we're going to go through 16, verse 10. All right, and there are Bibles that are kind of scattered um, underneath the chairs. We're going to be starting on page 924, and then it's also going to be up on the screen behind me. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we, were, we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple, was, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision of, appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is God's word. So I was reminded this week uh, that I do not like change. Um, some of you who know me know I'm fairly regimented, and um, I like structure and order and schedule. And so different activities sort of make me uncomfortable because it puts me out of my routine. Traveling's one of them. I love to travel, but I also don't love to travel. And uh, I have certain kinds of food that I like to eat. I have my pillow. I, I have my mattress. Uh, it's really sick uh, a little bit. And so anyway, my family, we're traveling as a family to Boston this week. And so the first time we take our little girl on an airplane, and so a lot goes into that in general. And uh, so part of me is a little, you know, feeling a little uncomfortable because I'm going to be out of my routine for several days. And um, I was thinking about sort of change this week. And one of the first memories I have of not liking change was when I was in high school. Um, I, my uh, first car was a Chrysler Town & Country minivan. Yeah, baby. It was tight, too. It was nice. 
But it was really, it was my mom's van. She gave it to me, and I had to wheel my brothers around everywhere. And so I remember one time I, was, I finished a basketball game in high school, and I walked out, and this, uh, this young lady was standing there, and she looks at me. She goes, you drive a minivan? I was like, dang. <laughs> yes, I do. So anyway, on the way to school, we would stop at Arby's, my brother and I, brothers and I often. And they had the best bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit on sourdough bread. And it was my go-to. Every time we'd go through there, it was like clockwork. And so one day I pulled up, wheel in in the minivan, roll down my window. I said, I'll take bacon, egg, and cheese on sourdough. She said, I'm sorry, sir, we don't serve that anymore. I said, you don't serve it anymore. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I honestly don't think I've eaten breakfast at Arby's since then. And this was 10 or 12 years ago. I'm being serious. And it formed in me, obviously, it devastated me early on in life. Uh, change, though, in a bigger sense, outside of just Arby's menu, is pretty difficult for most people. Change is not an easy thing. Um, in fact, um, change is hard, it's uncomfortable uneasy, unpredictable, Um, and oftentimes it reminds us that we don't really have control over situations to begin with. Um, I didn't get a phone call from the CEO at Arby's, you know, consulting me whether I wanted to change the menu or not. And so the reality, I think, for most of us is we, we fall into sort of one of two camps. One that we just acknowledge, like, like I do, I just don't like change. Or two, we pretend to like change. But generally what that is, is just masking some sort of discontentment underneath that doesn't like change, but just isn't content where they are. Because nobody really likes change. Because it presses on the most fragile parts of our lives. It it, it pushes up against parts of our faith, and areas of our life that we spend a lot of time protecting from change. Think about that in your own life. What area do you sort of maneuver around to make sure you stow away in the corner that change doesn't occur? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it finances? There's something in each of us that we actively protect to make sure We don't either lose what we perceive to be control or that no change makes its way to that space in our life. By God's providence and his design, he has given change as a means of grace to grow us. And when we experience change in whatever area of life, one of two things happens. Either our faith is strengthened because we lean into Christ in the midst of discomfort and unpredictability and loss of control, or we try to stand on our own, and it weakens our faith. Where we are in the book of Acts at this point, there's a lot of change going on. Think about Acts chapter 16. We've been in the book of Acts since June. Just to put it in sort of perspective, 20 years has passed since Christ's death at this point in the book of Acts. So best we can tell, Christ was crucified, 
uh, approximately A.D. 30. We're at about A.D. 50. So from Acts chapter 1 to 16 is, is almost 20 years, and so much has changed. The, the storyline is evolving now in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul's ministry is starting to change. Uh, his relationships are changing. The apostles and the gospel is spreading into places that it had never been before. There's a lot of change going on in the book of Acts. And what we find, and I think, my hope is this morning what we'll see, is that the Apostle Paul specifically was able to deal with sort of an ever-changing life because he realized two things. First, that his life was not his own. He didn't own his life. God did. And secondly, that nothing was permanent. And that plans and people, they belong to God. That's why several years later, after the scene that we're in here in Acts chapter 16, when Paul is sitting, pinning his first letter to the Corinthians, he says in, in chapter 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And earlier in that same note, Paul says, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And so Paul knew in a very real way that his time, his plans, his relationships, his actions, it didn't belong to him, that Christ had purchased him with his blood on the cross. And so Paul no longer lived in service of himself but in service of someone and something else. So let me ask, what area of your life are you resisting change in? Is God calling you to change churches, relationships, jobs, cities, countries? What area are you actively putting yellow tape around saying, do not enter. I think probably the best way we'll be served this morning is to sort of work through what Allison read for us, verses 36 through 1610, and just ask a bunch of questions along the way, most of which we won't have answers for today. But my hope and prayer for all of us is in our community groups, over lunch, in conversations with our spouses and friends, that in our prayer time, our personal time spent before the Lord, that the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal the answers to some of those questions on individual levels. And so before we do that, let me just kind of remind us, because I, I even found, honestly, this week as I was studying, it's very easy to get confused and remember all that has taken place thus far in a 20-year Period. I was, I was talking to somebody else. I said, you know, if this is where the gospel was after 20 years, we're only four and a half years old at Docs. That's not too bad, is it? We can't feel too bad about how we're progressing because the Lord's work is generally a, a slow work. It's a methodical work, much like sanctification. So let me remind us very quickly before we dive into the text itself, sort of where we are. Uh, up through Acts chapter 6, Keep in mind the Great Commission, right? So the beginning of Acts or the end of the Gospels, Jesus says, go therefore into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth and preach the Gospel. Well, 
by Acts chapter 6, it's not even out of Jerusalem. The, the, the only time it even started drifting a little bit was when uh, non-Jerusalem Jews or Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, came into the city in Acts chapter 6. And the first Gentile that we know of is Acts chapter 8, when Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian and, and God converts him. And so we're half, you know, we're, we're eight chapters in before there's ever anybody other than the Jerusalem Jews starting to profess faith. And then if, if you'll remember, Randy preached uh, from Acts chapter 14 several weeks ago um, on the church at Antioch, which as far as we know is the first Gentile church. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And that's where Paul and Barnabas, Saul at the time, Saul and Barnabas are there and they're commissioned by the church and sent out. And so they spend a year and a half sort of going around the Mediterranean and, and Syria and Turkey sharing the gospel. And so at this point, Paul has just come off of a year and a half journey. And along the way, as he sees uh, towns and people converted, professing Christ as the Savior, one of the biggest things that he ran into was Jews opposing this conversion. Because for thousands of years, the way to be in right standing with God was how? To be ethnically Jew, circumcised, and obey the Mosaic law. That was it. And so Paul's preaching a gospel now. Barnabas and Paul together are preaching a gospel that says, you can be all three of those and still not know God. I mean, think about that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And so he's running into a lot of opposition as he's out. And so this is where Jonathan was last week. Paul and Barnabas go before the, the sort of mother church in Jerusalem. And they lay out this issue before the elders. And they say, okay, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? And so in God's Sovereignty, and rightfully so, the elders come back and say, no, it is by grace through faith in Christ alone that one is saved. And so that's sort of where we are now in the, the flow of, of the book of Acts. Before we dive into the text, let me pray, um, and then let's spend some time in it. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, The only power comes from your word. Words are empty unless they are backed and rooted in scripture, unless they are founded and planted on your promises, unless they bring truth and encouragement to your people. And so we pray this morning that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to receive the good news Acts 15, 36 through 16, 10. That there is fruit here for us to eat and enjoy and feast on. That you, Jesus, are in this text. Would you illuminate your love for us, your sacrifice for us, and our hope in you in this time together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, who 
were very, very close. I mean, you think about it. I just got back with uh, my wife from 10 or 11 days on a um, sort of a mission trip over to Africa. And, you, you, you know, relationships form pretty deep when you're in the trenches with somebody, right? It, turmoil, strife. I mean, these guys were together for years. And I'd venture to say up until this point in the Bible, there are probably very few, if any, relationships that are as intimate and, and close as Paul and Barnabas. Maybe David and Jonathan in the Old Testament, but outside of that, this is probably the closest friendship that we see in the Bible. These were, I mean, they were, they were, they were road dogs together. I mean, this was, they, they, Paul had been stoned on the verge of death. Uh, Barnabas is actually the one who discipled Saul early on, and he brings uh, Bar- uh, Paul before the Jerusalem elders, which were uh, uh, Peter, James, and John at the time, and, and, and the elders affirm that Paul does have a vibrant, God-ordained ministry to preach to the Gentiles. They were, they, were, they were close. And what we see here, let me just reread this section. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do their work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other, Barnabas and Mark with him, and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and uh, Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Paul and Barnabas separate ways. And at first glance, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But can you imagine being on the verge of starting another missionary journey and to have a loss of relationship of that magnitude? It was significant. Significant. And we don't know much about Barnabas after this. The only nod that we get is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul, several years later, affirms Barnabas' ministry to the Corinthian church and to the Gentiles at large. The, the only way, think about it this way. What relationship in our lives, if we lost it or it was fractured, would hurt the most? It's different for each of us. What relationship would cut the deepest? And what would be our response to that? Most likely, it would be to retreat, wouldn't it? To to lick our wounds. And there's nothing wrong with grieving. That's not what I'm saying. But what, what, what happens to Paul after the deepest and most severe fracture relationally in his life? Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul didn't count any relationship as untouchable by the Lord. He didn't count any relationship as forbidden from change. He knew that his life and his relationships were not his own, that nothing was permanent, and that plans and people Belong to God. And in God's divine providence, it actually doubled the work 
of the gospel spreading because now Paul and Barnabas, uh, Barnabas takes a left and goes towards Cyprus and Paul goes back up the coast around the Mediterranean. And so let's, let's ask this on a personal level. What relationship Is it, and I, I don't say this lightly, is it the death of a spouse? Is it the loss of a child? Is it a wayward son or daughter? Is it a fracture between friends, sisters, brothers, daughters? What horizontal relationship in your life Could crush you if something were to change. And the question is, would it crush you? Would you be able to press on and, as Paul did, strengthen other brothers and sisters? Or would the weight of a loss or fracture relationally undo you? The answer to that question lies in whether our hope is vertical or horizontal. What relationship in your life are you most fearful that the Lord may change? And I, I don't mean to say that every one of us has some pending loss at the hands of God. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, and what the Apostle Paul understood to be true is that just like it says in Psalms, every one of our days is numbered before one of them came to be. That every time and place and relationship is appointed by God. And he determines when, where, and how. Not us. The Apostle Paul chose, and we'll see this through two more examples, he chose to wrap his fingers around eternal things and not temporal things. He held very loosely his grip to relationships, people, time, plans, and effort. Do we do the same? My answer is no. Absolutely not. But why? Well, for me, best I can tell at this point, it's because there's some sort of vertical mistrust or misplaced hope that I feel like whatever I get out of this horizontal relationship can substitute or fill what only God can. It would be very easy for the Apostle Paul to take a time out, wouldn't it? I mean, he just went through a bad breakup. That's tough. What does he do? 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. 
He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul comes off a bad relational breakup with his best friend and dives back into another relationship. He rebounded quickly. He was back on the market. And what we find out later in 2 Timothy is that Timothy ended up being Paul's best friend. But because Paul knew that every relationship belonged to the Lord, that it was the Lord's decision when to move people in, when to move people out. And it's that kind of freedom that Paul had in Christ to be hurt deeply. We, 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 don't, we don't get any indication from Scripture, but he was human. I mean, he hurt at some level for, for losing a friend, and he dives right back in. Only the gospel can give that kind of freedom and depth to relationships. And Paul knew that Timothy may be called away as well. And later in this chapter, Silas and Timothy are left in Berea, really chapter 17. And uh, Paul does something also interesting in this text. He just got back from the Jerusalem council where they told him what? Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. What does he and Timothy do? They get Timothy circumcised. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense when you view it from Paul and Timothy's personal perspective. But Paul believed that it was greater service to his brothers and sisters in Iconium and Lystra to serve them and not cause them to stumble rather than for their own comfort. Paul knew that none of his actions were his own, that he was in service of someone and something greater. So what are we, what are we in our own lives, our own jobs and homes, and what are we refusing to do that may be of benefit to someone else? Or let's ask it this way. Husbands, what area of your life are you refusing to serve your wife in? What area of your life do you move away from in order to not sacrifice or lay down? And what we're doing when we do that is we're missing an opportunities for our wives to be strengthened in the gospel. 
So what area of your life are you preventing your spouse from being enriched in Christ? And wives, what area of your life are you refusing to serve your husband in, keeping him from growing in the depths of the knowledge of Christ? Because it's a cause and effect in in verses one through five. Paul and Timothy go, they preach the gospel, it circumcised Timothy, and the churches are strengthened. So in our acts of service, the gospel and Christ are made big. So husbands and wives might not apply to everybody. Christian, what area of your life are you refusing to serve your other brothers and sisters in? and preventing them from seeing the beauty that is found in the face of those that serve at the behest of Jesus Christ. What area or areas do we actively move away from hindering our brothers and sisters from seeing Christ? Is it set up and tear down? Is it taking somebody a meal? Is it something far more significant and impactful than that? What is it? The Apostle Paul knew that his life and his service and his actions were not his own. But yet, if we're honest, most of our days are spent as if they are our own. Let's move into the last set of verses, 16, 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Pephrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go unto Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There is a lot there. Um, Some obvious, some not obvious. The first thing that kind of popped out to me was, and probably to you, is that the, the Spirit forbid them from preaching the gospel. Doesn't that go directly against the Great Commission? 16 chapters earlier, Jesus himself, go therefore and preach the good news. Acts chapter 16, don't preach the good news. How do we square that up? I think the easiest way to think about it is that sometimes there's good work being done and even God's work being done. But that doesn't mean that it's your work. Think about Ephesians chapter two. 
Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Proverbs 16, 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Acts chapter 17, having determined times and a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Just because there's a good work going on and even gospel work, that does not mean that in this time or this season that that is your work. The problem is, how do you know? How do you know? How could Paul have known that something good would come out of him not preaching the gospel? That was his sole purpose. He didn't know. He didn't. And chances are, we won't know either. But we can trust the wise, sovereign, faithful hand of God to visit us and lead us in the same way that he did the Apostle Paul. And sometimes, you know, we don't know why he was forbidden to preach the gospel. We don't have an answer to that. Most likely it was circumstances prevented him from doing it. But it could have been an audible voice. It could have been a vision. Paul trusted in a very deep way the hand and leadership of the Holy Spirit. And Paul held very loosely any plans that he thought he had because he knew that his plans, his relationships, his time, his effort, his energy, his talents, they didn't belong to him. It is so easy for us to have ownership issues. We think we are entitled to everything. I am as guilty as anyone. And I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not speaking from some sort of condemning place. I'm speaking from somebody who has been cut open and fried by the Holy Spirit for the last four weeks under heavy rebuke and discipline. I feel like I'm, I'm going through a, like a food processor. The Lord is rebuking me. And he disciplines those whom he loves. And we can learn much from Paul's ministry, from Paul's life, from Paul's ability to hold everything but Christ Jesus loosely. When we begin to believe that we're in control, we then begin to tighten our grip on everything that we think we have control on. And we begin to circumvent situations and circumstances and start creating our life to be what we want it to be, where we want it to go. Friend, if you are a Christian, 
when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you gave the keys to your car to him. And in the power of the Spirit, he says to you, let me show you a more pure and excellent way, a way filled with joy and peace, a way filled with satisfaction and contentment, a way filled with purpose and identity, but a way that you are not in control of. We mentioned earlier at the very beginning that that there is nothing or no one that is permanent. There is no circumstance or situation that is permanent. That's not entirely true. Because everything about our life and our relationships and our circumstances will change. There are inevitably some of us in here who will lose relationships, spouses, children, who will have significant plans changed, who will be required and asked by the Lord to do things that don't make sense. And even in the midst of, from chapter 15 to 16, Paul goes from getting off of a ship in the port of Jerusalem to uh, standing before giving his dissertation on why Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to the elders, to traveling by 15 days journey to Antioch, to then parting ways with his best friend, to then hopping on another ship, and now he's two countries over, and he's about to leave the three other guys that he just uh, came together with. In a chapter. And in the midst of all of that change, there was one thing that was not changed. In the midst of all of our ebbs and flows and quicksand underneath our feet, there is one that is never changing. Let me read you six scriptures. Uh, Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 2 Corinthians 4, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hebrews 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. James 1, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3, for I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Hebrews 13, 8 again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no softer place that we can lay our head than that. A year from now, your life, your relationships, and your situations will look completely different. But Christ will not. Everything that we need in life, in death, in trial, and triumph, 
is found in Christ. And 3,000 years ago, he was just and righteous and faithful and good to the people of Israel. And today, he is just and righteous and faithful and good to his church. He has not and will not change. And there is nothing in our lives that we can say that about but him. And there is no place that we can find peace and rest outside of him. The the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. A rock cleft is an indention, almost like a cubbyhole, carved out in the side of a rock. That in the midst of a storm going on, Christ is the only cleft by which we can hide ourselves in. And Paul's ministry was nowhere near over. He had years and years of lost relationship, physical beatings, verbal assaults, shipwreck, death. 2 Timothy 4, he tells us, I went on trial and nobody came to stand with me. I was alone. But yet, he found Christ to be more desirable, more safe, more restful than any other circumstance around his life. When we believe or act as if our plans and our life is our own, there's sort of an ancillary effect for us. It doesn't just affect us. If, if Paul and Timothy don't have Timothy circumcised, it doesn't just affect Timothy and Paul. It's a domino effect. So the way in which we live our lives, either in service of Christ or in service of ourself, directly affects multiple levels of people and things. Here are three. The first thing it affects is we miss an opportunity to have our faith strengthened and the peace and rest that comes with submitting our life and relationship and plans to Christ. The second thing that it affects is other brothers and sisters or Christians and non-Christians who are watching you are robbed of the benefit of seeing your faith strengthened. Third, we attempt to steal something that doesn't belong to us. 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. You were for sale, and the only two bidders were Satan and Christ. And if you are in Jesus, the price was paid. You have been purchased, and he is now the cleft in which you can rest in. Here's what I want us to think about this week. And then we'll finish. What areas of our lives are we resisting change? What areas of our lives are we holding too tightly? What relationships, what situations, 
what possessions, time, schedule. Are we telling the Lord are not his? Which, by the way, is not true. So we're deceiving ourselves. And what I've found in this season of discipline is you either go kicking and screaming or you go with joy. But Barnabas, in God's providence, was going to part ways with Paul. And Paul, in that moment, has one of two options. Pout or find joy in Christ. And so what situations are we resisting the hand of the Lord? In our, in our quiet prayer time, when no one else is around, what's the one thing we avoid praying about? Because we don't want the answer. In, in our time when we open the Bible, you say, oh, not going to that chapter. I know what that one's about. How are we steering our lives away from certain areas? Please spend this week thinking and praying about what those answers are for you and your family. Because the answers not only affect your spiritual health and vibrancy, they affect people in this room as well. And our sole purpose as the church is to represent in a very clear way the love and sacrifice of Christ to non-believers and to make sure as best we can that we help other believers finish the race. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we trust you. Sometimes even when we don't trust by the power of your Holy Spirit, we've been made new. And even though our old man, our flesh, doesn't want to trust that you are unchangeable, that you are kind and good, that you are sweet and just, that you are righteous and faithful, that you are immutable, the Spirit inside of us tells us that you are that you are all we need and that every area of our life can be trusted to your hands. There is no tragedy or no square inch of our life that if we lay in your hands that we will be mistreated because in and through your son Jesus we are bound up safe in your arms. And so would you give your people courage to think boldly about their lives this week? Would you give your people strength and self-reflection and honesty on how to properly examine the lives and the ways in which we have sort of stowed away or cornered off or quarantined parts of our lives from your service? And would you lead that in us and through us this week, and may the result be that we see you more clearly and that your church and your people here in Myrtle Beach are strengthened in their love and affection for you. In Christ's name.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.